of Mephibosheth. I'm almost tempted to get you to say that. <laughs> yes. We've looked at uh, Mephibosheth. We've looked at uh, Job and also Jonah. But today we're going to be in more familiar territory. We're moving into the pages of the New Testament and um, more specifically in Luke's Gospel. But first of all, let's have some context. The Gospel of Luke is well known as the Gospel for the marginalised. Luke has a special place in his heart for those that society detests, for those who are the underdogs, for the disenfranchised. And uh, in Luke's Gospel, we are told how Jesus went from town to town teaching and preaching the principles and the values of the kingdom of God. How to live a new way with God at the centre of your life. Jesus helped people rethink the way that they use their money, the way that they should resolve conflicts, the way that they should treat the poor, and loving your neighbour, what that looked like in practice. And each town, Jesus would create new groups of people who followed his teaching and began to live out this new kind of God life. He reached out to people on the margins, the sex workers, the despised tax collectors, and those who were um, de detested foreigners. The kingdom community was open to everyone, and there was only one requirement, and that was to humble yourself and recognize your need for God's mercy. Now, it wasn't long before the religious leaders began to criticize Jesus and saying such things as, well, you are a prophet, and why is it then that you can't understand who these people are? You don't seem to know who these people are. You call yourself a prophet, and yet you're welcoming people like this. That was a comment which is directed at Jesus hosting dinner parties for people on the edges of society, for the detested, for those who were regarded sinners by others, for the poor, for the sick, for the marginalised, to those who could never, ever pay Jesus back. Now, the religious leaders divided people into two groups. Essentially, those that they believe God loved and those that they believe that God did not love. And in response to these religious leaders, Luke records for us in Luke chapter 15, there's a great chapter, three stories told by Jesus in quick succession. First of all, he, he told them a story of a shepherd who loses one of his 100 sheep. He leaves the 99 and goes searching for the one that was lost. And then Jesus says something very important. Just four words, and yet so easy to miss when you're reading that passage. And the four words that Jesus tells us is that the shepherd searches until he finds it. Until he finds it. The second story is the story of a woman that loses one of her ten silver coins. Now, like a shepherd in the first story, she searches for that which is missing. She turns the house inside out. How long does she search for? For a day? For a week? For a month? No. It's again, we find those same four words. Until she finds it. 
And then comes the third story. And the third story is today's story. It's a story that transformed. It's the hardest hitting and most riveting of all the stories. It's the story that probably all of us know so very well. The story of the prodigal son, the story of the lost son. And in this story of the lost son, there are actually three other stories. There are two stories which are human stories. The stories of the younger brother and the older brother. And then there's the story of the father. And in this parable, the father, of course, represents God. And we hear from God's perspective. So, very briefly... I'm sure I don't need to, but for those who might not know the story, let me just whiz through it for you so that you understand the frame of reference this morning. The story that Jesus told was a story of a man and two sons. The younger son wanted a share of his father's inheritance. This was utterly unheard of in the time, in the culture. Uh, it was much as saying that um, the, the son saying to the father, Father, I want you dead. His father unexpectedly agrees and gives in to him. He takes the money, leaves home, goes to a foreign land, wastes the lot, comes upon hard times, a famine uh, comes upon the land, and therefore he is caused to just eat the, the food that the pigs were eating. He comes to his senses and thinks, if I can go back to my father and just ask him if he would make me a hired servant. On his way home, he practices his speech. His father, again unexpectedly, welcomes him home, embraces him, throws a homecoming party for him. This son who was lost is now found. This son who was dead is now alive. Rings, cloaks, sandals, the fatted calf, the business. The older brother hears about this and refuses to join in. He tells his father that his father is being unfair and that his father has not even given him a goat to celebrate with his friends, let alone a fatted calf. And then the father says, verse 31, My son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Well, as I say, that's a story that probably we all know inside out, back to front, we could almost recite. That's the big story. You probably know it well. But inside that big story, there are three other stories. And the first of those other stories is the story of the younger son. After making a mess of his life, he returns home. On his way home, he, re he rehearses this speech that he's going to make to his father. Verse 19. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. That's his story. I'm no longer worthy. That's the story that he's believing. Yet he has enough faith in his father's forgiveness to believe that his father would have made him a hired servant. He thought that that would actually happen and that's why he came home. And yet when he gets home, he gets far more than he deserves. Robes, rings, sandals and the fatted calf. Signs not of being a servant but of being a son. 
don't know if you noticed that. The two stories there, the father's story and the story of the younger son, are so very, very, very different. Okay, then we come to the older brother's story. He tells the father, All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But this, when this son of yours, notice that, can't even say his name, when this son of yours, it's a little bit like sometimes divorced people who cannot speak of their former spouse by name, they just refer to them as the ex, which is often a way of camouflaging the hurts of the past. This son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home. You kill the fattened calf for him. Now, reading between the lines, it seems as if he's been saving up this speech for many years. There's such venom in it. You can almost imagine him spitting the words out. It's also very easy to miss what he's saying and think that this is just an attack on the younger brother. It's not. This is also about the way that he perceives his father. Listen to the version of events again. He says that he has been slaving for his father. That's the way that he describes life in the house. Slaving. That he was slaving all that time that he was with his father. And yet, even from a, a cursory look at this passage, that's not the impression or the image that I pick up of that father. Do you see that father as a slave driver? No. But that's his perception. That's his story. That's his narrative. And then the older brother goes on to say that his father has never given him a goat. Now, obviously, compared to a fatted, fattened calf, a goat doesn't have much meat on it. It's grawny. But he's conjuring up this idea that the father is mean and miserly, that the father is stingy, that the father is unfair, that he believes that he has been wronged, shortchanged, and he is utterly, utterly, utterly furious about it. So there we have it. The stories of the two sons. But the story of the father is uh, very, very different. We quoted a moment ago, verse 31. My son... You are always with me and everything I have is yours. You see, the father's story to the son was everything I have is yours. You could have it at any time you wanted it. All he needed to do is ask and it would have been given to you. You see, with God, people get what they don't deserve. The Bible calls that grace. You didn't know that, did you? People get what they don't deserve. And the Bible calls that grace. And that's the theme so often of the parables of Jesus. Think of them. We learn of people who are employed to work one hour late in the afternoon. And yet they get a day's wages. That's not fair. We read of those on street corners who are invited to the king's banquets. That's not fair. And as this story illustrates of parties that are thrown for younger brothers who have squandered their inheritance. That's not fair. 
And you see, each brother's version of events is distorted. And the reason for that is that they do not understand what their father is really like. The younger brother believes that he is estranged, that he's cut off, that his father no longer loves him because of the terrible things that he has done in the past. He feels that his past has disqualified him from his father's love. The older brother believes the opposite. He believes that he does deserve the father's love. And he deserves the father's love because of the way that he has slaved for his father all through the years. Both sons are mistaken. One thinks that his sins have separated him from the father, but the older brother thinks that his father owes him. Neither understood the father's love. Some people feel that they can't love God because the God that they have been introduced to, and sometimes by Christians, isn't anything like the Father in the story of Jesus. Let me say that again. Some people feel that they can't love God because the God that they have been introduced to and sometimes by Christians, isn't anything like the father in Jesus' story. When I was in Bible college way back in 1984, my word, yes, I am that old, as part of my training, along with other students, we were requested to do an open-air evangelism service in Crawley Town Centre in West Sussex. And we were there with a sketchboard. I'm sure you've seen sketchboards where you are filling in the, the words at the same time you're speaking to the crowd. Now, being quite an introvert, I absolutely hated it. That was horrible. That was the worst thing ever. And I hated every moment of it. But as I look back, I look back upon that day with um, significant embarrassment. A message of the day was focused on four words. You could say it was a a four-point sermon. And the first word that we painted up on the board was the word earn. And we spoke to the crowds, uh, emphasising that for some people, life is all about earning. It's all about money. It's all about materialism. It's getting how much you get. And the second word we painted up on the sketchboard was the word learn. For some The focus is on higher education, on bettering themselves, on getting higher degrees. But then we spoke to the crowd and we said that uh, true life is not about earn and it's not about learn. It's about Jesus. And therefore we spoke about the need to turn. Our third word. But to choose not to turn would have consequences which introduced us to our fourth word. Burn. I'm cringing, actually, as I'm saying this. Earn, learn, turn, burn. I've often thought about that day, 37 years ago, and I have wondered what those passers-by thought about our message. I wonder if many of them thought, wow, that's, that's a God I, I really want to follow.
I'm sure there was a better way to communicate our message of Jesus, Saviour of the world, than we shared with those unsuspecting bystanders in the crowd in Crawley Town Centre 37 years ago. Over the years, I've had my fair share of Christian conferences and leadership conferences where we are told how to make our churches more welcoming, more missional, more relevant, how to use uh, multimedia, how to connect with others, how to build relationships with people who aren't a part of our church. And sometimes those conferences were helpful. But at the heart of it, we could get all of those things right but if we have misunderstood who the person of God that we are worshipping is, then we have wasted our, times, our time. You see, if there's something wrong with our understanding of God, that if our God is loving one minute and cruel the next, if God's love is not persevering and not impartial and not unconditional, then no amount of good music, clever marketing, compelling language or good coffee, will be able to disguise that awful reality. Our God is infinitely greater and more loving than our wildest and most extravagant thoughts about him. His love is greater and more wonderful and more indestructible and more eternal and durable and unbreakable and imperishable. And the word that Paul uses is unsearchable than we could ever, ever imagine. Let us never judge God's love by our own understanding and by the frailties of human love, which on times, and I'm sure you'd agree with me, is so fickle and changing and erratic. Now, some might accuse me this morning and saying that um, the way that I'm painting this version of God is far too simplistic, far too sentimental, perhaps, Somebody might say to me, well, yes, he is a God of love, but he's also a God of holiness, a God of justice. And I would say, yes, of course he is. But there's one thing that I would need to say to that in, in response. That God's character must always, always be seen as a whole. He is not a God of love one day and a God of holiness the next day and then a God of justice the next day. He is a God of love, justice, holiness, faithfulness, truth, Every day and in every action and all the time. He is all of those things together. Which means that God's love will always also be holy and just. And his love will never contradict any of the other qualities that we find within God. Similarly, God's justice must always be seen as loving justice, which means that God's justice will never allow him to act in a way which is unloving. God's characteristics, his qualities, they will always complement, but never contradict each other. And I would love you just to sit down in your own space for half an hour and just think that one thought through. It could change your life. It will change your view and understanding, perhaps, of God forever. Let me come into land. We're calling this series, the series, um, the, the stories that, that transform. 
So you may ask this morning, in which way, therefore, is this amazing story that we find in Luke chapter 15 transformative? Well, if we can really truly see this uh, chapter for what it is and this amazing story, it will transform, firstly, the way that we see ourselves. That we will see ourselves as loved rather than loathed. That we will see ourselves as saints rather than sinners. That we will see ourselves as sons and daughters of God and not slaves. It will also transform the message that we communicate. That we will see this message that we communicate as truly good news. No, better than that, awesome news. Rather than good news for the few, but bad news for the majority. It will also transform the way that we communicate. And we will communicate to others with kindness and compassion and love. Rather than shouting sound bites from a shopping precinct. It will also transform the way that we view others. That we will view them as loved eternally by God. And very, very, very precious to him. Maybe some of you listening this morning, your story might be a little bit similar to the younger brother's story. You might have thought of yourself as disqualified from God's love. You know yourself, your own personal history. There are past mistakes, perhaps, wrong turns. You might have even said those words, God could never accept me because... Fill in the blanks. Words to that effect. And I just want to say to you this morning, if that's you, and if that's your view on matters, that's an absolute lie. Because when Jesus, the Son of God, described what God the Father is like, he used this illustration of a father running with arms open wide to the prodigal sons and daughters. Maybe your story this morning is similar to the older brother's story. At times you might have felt that God has been holding out on you in some way. And especially as you look around and you compare your life and its trials to the way that others don't have such a bad life after all. And you've tried your best, you've said. You've served God with diligence. And yet others in your mind who are less deserving, appear to live a more blessed life than you have experienced. For them, it seems as if life is a bed of roses, but you always seems to, seem to get the thorns. And maybe that's been part of your thinking. I just want to say to you this morning that the older son was so intent on comparing himself to his brother that he missed the blessings his father had given him. I think that's worth repeating. The older son was so intent on comparing himself with his brother that he missed the blessings his father had given him. My son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. So I would encourage you this morning, please, 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 don't fall into that same trap. Ask the Lord, to open the eyes of your heart that you might truly see who this God is that you worship, that he is abundant in grace and compassion 
that he is one who is slow to anger and overflowing in mercy. Guys, would you like to come back? Would the band just come back for a moment? And I'll conclude with just some great words of Paul on God's persistent and persevering love. Words well known to us in Romans chapter 8. Verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, which sounds pretty inclusive to me, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray together, shall we? Lord, we just pray that you will forgive us for the way that we sometimes become over-familiar with the wonder of your grace. And we pray today that you will allow this amazing story from the lips of Jesus to transform us and to cause us to live our lives as a faithful response to your awesome overwhelming, breathtaking love for each of us. Lord, we pray that we will never entertain lesser or inadequate thoughts about you or question your love for us. Lord, we thank you, as we've sung earlier in this service, that your love never fails, it never gives up, and it never runs out on us. Amen. Amen. Thank you.